Okay. No big deal. Awesome. I'll start it up here in a second. Or you don't cut it off. Well, thank you. Open up to Matthew chapter 14. And thank you all very much for the birthday wishes. That was that was very creative. I'm very impressed. Very impressed at the coordination and the creativity there. I like it. I gotta keep it, although it's my least bit like this wasn't a good fish. It's like the worst. The worst fish. Huh? Yeah. No, you could have done a better fish. How many inches was it? I don't know. Like six? I don't know. But, but no, thank you so much. Um, that was extraordinarily surprising, creative, and just really appreciate it. God's obviously blessed me in a lot of ways in life. Like I can think of just endless things that he's blessed me with, but without a doubt, top of the list is amazing people. I've just had amazing people around me my whole life, from Jenna, my family, to just friends all throughout life. And y'all are very much a part of that. So thank you so much. And sadly, none of the chants didn't have to make anything up. That's the bothersome part of like his whole thing. <laughs> Those are all 100% real stories. I was the dead last ranked tennis player in District 26-5A, 6A actually, Texas high school tennis in 1999. So it's rough, but, uh, but thank you all so much. So Matthew chapter 14, Matthew chapter 14. What, what I like about the gospel writers is they are relentless. They're relentless. Like you've had somebody in your life who kept telling you something over and over and over again and just pounding the way to you never forget it, right? Or they're just trying to communicate something to you and their approach is just to repeat it over and over and over again. Give you example after example. And that's exactly what the gospel writers do. The gospel writers are relentless in showing us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They do it from a little bit different angle, a little bit different points of emphasis. Like we know Matthew focuses a lot on the kingly heritage, or the, the and king, the, he comes from. Lineage. Yes, that's what I was looking for. I'm getting old. So, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Mark focuses a lot on the servanthood of Christ. Luke focuses a lot on the humanity of Christ. John focuses a lot on Jesus being the Son of God. But all of them are giving us the same message about who Jesus Christ is, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. And they do this in numerous ways, but one of the ways that is most prominent is through the miracle. The, just the relentless one after another, miracle after miracle after miracle. And it doesn't get old. And in fact, there could have been much, much more recorded for us. John tells us at the end of his gospel, John chapter 20, he says, I think it's verse 31, that the reason he recorded these miracles were so that we would know Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God in the flesh. And John goes on to say in chapter 20 that he just had to pick and choose a few miracles from the life of Jesus 
But if he had recorded all of it, the world wouldn't be able to contain all the miracles that Jesus did. So it's no surprise that tonight we find Jesus performing another miracle. And a very familiar miracle to many, many people. If you see Matthew chapter 14, looking at verse 13, you'll see the heading there very likely in your Bible. 5,000 fed. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, if you say, wait a second, I thought I heard 4,000 before. Well, that actually comes up next chapter. Chapter 15, Jesus does a very similar thing again. But the passage we're looking at tonight says the 5,000 are fed. And if you think about that number, you look at verse 21, it says the 5,000, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So these were kind of the men, the representatives of the families and the households that were there. When you start counting their wives and the women and the children, I don't, I don't know, I'm, 7,000, 10,000, 15,000? I really have no idea. We're talking, though, about a lot of people. Try to get that picture in your head because when you read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels are really any kind of history, right? I mean, go pick up an American history book. Your mind typically doesn't do a very good job of capturing the gravity of what was really happening happening and how enormous it really was. So as you put yourself in this narrative tonight, imagine 10, 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Just to remember a little bit of the context of where we've been, chapter 13, Jesus teaches them in parables. That's where we got a concentration on the parables of Christ after chapter 13, or after the parables, I should say, towards the end of chapter 13, Jesus goes back to his hometown, back to Nazareth, where he grew up. And what type of reception does Jesus find in Nazareth? Hostile. Yeah, hostile, or just, you know, in some cases, maybe just indifference. People, I would say hostile, sure, I'm sure there's, very often some of that, but you'll remember it was pretty much indifference. Like, who's this Jesus? This isn't this just Joseph's son and Mary's son, and we know his brothers and sisters. They failed to receive Christ for who he is. Because Jesus taught. Everywhere Jesus went, he taught. He taught the kingdom of God. He taught repentance. He taught how to get into the kingdom of God. That was what he did, his obsession, everywhere he went, serving the Father. But in his hometown, the people were very indifferent. Often he faced hostility, but indifferent. And it says at the end of chapter 13, verse 57, that they took offense at him. They rejected him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Last week, Matt did a great job of teaching us kind of this interlude which, in which Matthew tells us about what happened with John the Baptist. What happened with John the Baptist? That John was executed by Herod and his wife, 
because of his opposition to their immoral marriage. Matt led us into that in, um, in verse 13, where we're picking up tonight, just to kind of set the scene. Jesus hears about John, and he withdraws from there back to Capernaum, back to Gal- the Galilee region along the Sea of Galilee. So let's read these verses that we'll focus on tonight, verses 13 to 21. And we'll look at this in three different parts. The first part is Jesus withdraws. He hears about John and he withdraws. The second part is the dilemma. A dilemma comes up because of all the people who come out to see Jesus. And the third part we'll look at is his miraculous solution. So let's read this passage Starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides women and children." This passage clearly shows us Jesus is the Son of God performing this miracle to feed these people. But it shows us a lot about a lot of other aspects to Jesus as well. A lot of aspects to him being 100% God, but also his humanity. And, and uh, it, we learn a lot about him that should really comfort us as we think about him is our Messiah, our representative before the Father. It starts, Jesus hears about John, and he withdraws from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Why do you think when Jesus hears about John, he withdraws to be alone? Uh, to mourn because John was his cousin, I guess. Yeah, yeah. John, John was his cousin. John was somebody that um, Jesus had a lot of respect for. John, uh, he told the people that born of women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist, right? Jesus was baptized by John. We see the humanity of Christ here. The humanity, it's very easy for us to forget that Jesus is 100% man, like you, like me. Do you get sad? Do you get tired? Do you get lonely 
Jesus felt all that. The, the same struggles you have in life, the same way you would have reacted in sadness and mourning to hear of the execution of somebody dear to you, Jesus had that same kind of sorrow. Jesus, how often do we come across him in the Gospels weeping over people, sorrowful for people? Jesus feels those same emotions, that same sadness that you and I often feel. That should be incredibly comforting to you. We were talking, me and some of the guy leaders before um, tonight, before y'all got here, about how one of the things that we love the most about the Bible is how authentic it is to real life. It's so authentic because if you know somebody who has a perfect life, nobody does, right? People pretend to, trust me, nobody's got a perfect life, but let's pretend. Let's pretend somebody's got a perfect life. They've got everything they could ever want and need and no troubles at all. How much can you really relate to that person? How much can that person really empathize with you? How easy is it to take advice, counsel, from somebody who's got no clue what your circumstances are like? It's a lot harder, right? But here we have in Christ a sympathetic high priest, one who took on flesh, one who, being Philippians 2 tells us, being in the form of God, emptied himself, not of his divinity, but in the sense of his divine, um, the, the, I can't think of anything this is right tonight, in the sense of just the divine privileges that he had as God, he set those things aside, took on frail humanity, and experienced the struggles that we experience in life, was tempted just like we are. He never sinned, tempted as we are, yet without sin. But he is a sympathetic high priest. When you hear the commandments of Jesus, when you read the words of Christ, you're reading those words from the Son of God who can sympathize in every way with your weakness and who understands your weakness. To me, that is incredibly comforting, incredibly comforting. And I think that applies to a lot of the Bible. You read the Psalms, you read what Paul talks about, about rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, he says rejoice. You read just about any area of scripture and you've got people who know struggle, right? They know difficulty, they know trials. And they're not sugarcoating life. They're not hiding in any of that. But they're being very authentic with us and saying, okay, yeah, we live in a sinful fallen world. You're going to have sinful, um, you're going to have the consequences of sin all around you. But here's how you honor God and live faithfully before God in the midst of those trials. So when I see Jesus wanting to be secluded, I would gather from just what we see in the rest of the Gospels, spending additional focused time in prayer with the Father, mourning over the loss of his friend and his cousin, John. Jesus has 
the emotions of sadness that we would all relate to. But he experiences something else we also experience, which I promise you he experiences it to a far greater degree, an interruption, right? Like he wants to get secluded. He wants to go be with the Father and, and have this time of mourning. But who shows up? Who shows up? Verse 13 says, the people from the cities. Verse 13 says, when the people heard of this, that Jesus had gone out to the Sea of Galilee, they followed him on foot from the cities. Once again, our minds have a habit of not reading something and getting the full impact of it. When I first read that and I hear the people followed him from the cities, you know, I see like five, ten folks showing up with needs. No, think to what we're about to walk into here. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Thousands of people. And do you think these are calm people, relaxed people? No, these are people with drastic human needs, sickness, poverty, diseases of all sorts. They're bringing their loved ones to be healed. If you've got somebody that you love very much, sibling, a parent, a friend, and you know that Jesus is right over there and can instantly heal them and make them perfectly well, are you going to just calmly wait in line? I saw you all at camp. You didn't calmly wait in line for horrible camp food. So I know if there's Jesus over there who's able to heal your sickness, your disease, it's going to be a ruckus, right? People are probably, you got thousands of people piling over each other. It's a chaotic scene. Jesus withdraws to get seclusion, time of quiet with the Father, thousands of loud, crazy people show up with these deep, deep needs. And does Jesus get annoyed? Does Jesus get bothered? I mean, I, I struggle with that. Like, if I need a nap, because maybe I stayed up till 11 o'clock the night before, and I need a nap the next day, like, I'm bothered when somebody comes and wakes me up for something simple, right? Like, Jesus, though, when he sees the crowds, verse 14 says he has compassion on them. He has compassion for them. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't get angry. Instead, it says he heals their sick. His compassion pushes him, compels him to exercise his divinity in healing the sick. It's when you read these verses here, verses 13 and 14, it should get you really excited about who your Savior is. Not only do you have a Savior, the infinite divine God of this universe, not only is he the infinite divine God of this universe, but he can completely relate to whatever hardships you're facing. In fact, Whatever hardships we're facing, trust me, Jesus faced those same difficulties at a much higher level. Infinitely divine, can completely relate to you, and has incredible compassion. Incredible compassion. 
that should get you really excited about who your Savior is. He has compassion and he heals them. That brings us to a little bit of a dilemma. Or maybe the disciples felt like this was a big dilemma. Verses 15 to 18. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have here five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. It's interesting, this goes on all day. Like Jesus withdraws for some seclusion, and this apparently goes on all day long because when we get to verse 15, it's evening time. It's it's getting late. The day's gone by, and there's thousands of people here. They need to eat. These are thousands of people in a remote place, a desolate place, it tells us in verse 15, or um, verse 15, and there's no place for them to get food. So the disciples start to get worried. When you have thousands of people on hand and nothing to give them, nothing to feed them, they go tell Jesus, hey, these people, they need to go away. They need to go take care. I'm sure the disciples are getting hungry too, you know? And if you've got a loaf of bread and a thousand people around you that don't, you kind of feel, you know, you'd like to get that loaf of bread out, but you don't really want to share with this thousand people, right? Like, I'm sure the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, I'm kind of getting hungry. We got a little bit of food back there. Let's get the people out of here so we can get some food finally. We've been at this all day. The answer Jesus gives them is not at all what they, what they expected. Jesus tells them they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. What would have been your response there to Jesus? There's a few times, probably a lot of times, I think, if I really went through and outlined it, but numerous times in the Gospels where Jesus says something and the apostles have to be like, I don't think Jesus understands what's going on here. This would be one of those times where you've got these, the, this ocean of people, you've got a little bit of food here, five loaves of bread, two fish, and Jesus says, nah, you don't need to send them away. Just give them food. It's like, well, what are you talking about? We don't have hardly any food at all. We barely got enough. There's, what, 12 of us? I don't know if all 12 are there, but however many. They're saying, hey, we barely got enough for ourselves. What do you mean feed this sea of humanity out, out here that is hungry and needing food? So they tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, there's a problem. We've only got the five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says... Bring them here to me. There's a number of times like this throughout the Gospels where, again, what Jesus instructs the people around him to do on a human level doesn't make any sense at all. But Jesus has, part three here, a miraculous solution. Verses 19 to 21. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass... He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides 
women, and children. So he tells the crowds, sit down. This Again, the sea of people, right? It's not like Jesus is like, hey, sit down. And guy number 9,997 in the back hears him, right? So like, you got to imagine you got the disciples going out saying, okay, everybody, hey, sit down, sit down. Get your, get your families and sit down. People are like, what's going on? What's going on here? Why are we sitting down? But Jesus has them all sit down, and he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. I love that. I love that Jesus, even as God himself, even as the Son of God, he still looks to the Father. There's still that relationship that he teaches us and demonstrates uh, for us a full dependence on the Father. Jesus demonstrates this and teaches this a lot throughout his ministry. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount in the Lord's Prayer, where he teaches us to glorify the Father, to pray for the Father's will to be done, and he, he, he teaches us to look to the Father for our daily food, our daily provision. We see this regularly throughout the life of Christ that he thanks the Father for his food and demonstrates for us that full dependence on the Father. In breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Now, did everybody get enough to just sustain themselves? Like, all right. I think we've been watching this show on TV where, like, people try to survive in the wilderness, you know? So they're eating, like, berries, and they're eating, like, whatever little mice or, I don't know, whatever they can find. No ideas, Fox. Um, and, uh, and, I mean, their whole goal is, like, hey, let's just get barely enough to sustain ourselves just to get by till this thing ends. Is that what happened here? No. These people are satisfied. Not only are they fully satisfied, they have plenty of food left over. They have 12 full baskets of food left over. Is this not exactly the way we always see Christ perform his miracles? Every miracle that Jesus does is instant and full and beyond any kind of doubt, right? It, at no point have we seen in the Gospels where people doubt the powers of Christ. At no point have we seen in the Gospels where people doubt the reality of the miracles and the reality of what Jesus is doing. Now, does Christ still get rejected often? Yes. People, they see the miracles, but they love their sin and they don't want to give their life over to Christ. So that still happens. But the miracles are never in doubt. Anytime somebody is sick and they come to Christ to be healed, it is 100% healing in an instant. Anytime somebody is demon possessed and they come to Christ, it is 100% healing in an instant. When, when he calms the oceans, when he calms the seas and the winds, it is in an instant and it is complete. That's the way true miracles happen. If anybody is ever telling you like, hey, I'm a miracle worker, 
and they don't fall into this pattern of what we see in Scripture, where these are instant, right-away miracles that are undeniable, they're, they're, not, they're not real. The miracles of Christ, nobody could ever deny the power. And it's the same as the apostles. If you go through Acts and you go through the New Testament, you see miracles, the whole point was to verify the messenger. The prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and most supremely, Jesus Christ himself, they were messengers giving us the word of God. And because they brought us new revelation, things that God had not revealed to humanity before, because these were new pieces of revelation and information from God, God gave the prophets, the apostles, Jesus himself, the power to perform these undeniable miracles so that it was very clear that their message is from God and authenticated. Now, people, again, still denied it because miracles don't save people. It's only the Holy Spirit working in the life of a person who can give that regeneration into spiritual life. But the miracles were undeniable. And once the apostles died away, so Christ, he's the one who appointed the apostles to complete the revelation of God, once the apostles were gone, there's no more new revelation needed. Uh, uh, John closes out revelation with, hey, if anybody adds to these words, let him be accursed. There's, there's no more revelation to be given, and so there's no more need for miracles. There's no more need to um, verify a vehicle of God giving us his special revelation, his divine revelation. So that's why we see the miracle cease. So when you see people talking today like, hey, I'm a miracle worker, first of all, there's no need for it. We have God's word here. It was already authenticated when it was given to us with miracles. Your choice is really, do you believe it or not? So there's no more need for miracles. And then again, these miracles that they supposedly do, like, hey, I was limping really bad when I came in here, and now I'm kind of limping. No, that's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus took people who were clinically dead and had been clinically dead for hours or days and instantly made them perfectly alive, or people who had complete blindness and instantly made them see Today, in this passage, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus took, literally took, five loaves, two fish, probably something you could fit like right here. I bet they were more impressive than the fish I caught, but still. Um, literally took that and fed a sea of people. A sea of people. It was undeniable. It was undeniable. The question is, same for the people it was in the immediate audience of Jesus. It's the same question that applies to us. Jesus has made it crystal clear who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one and only way to heaven. Because there's not a single one of us 
who hasn't sinned and put an insurmountable obstacle between ourselves and God. Because when God made us, he made us for fellowship with him. That's our purpose for being here. If you want to talk about your purpose in life, you might get into a lot of things and interested in a lot of things, but your purpose is one thing, to have fellowship with God, to know him, glorify him. Like Pastor Dusty taught this past Sunday, to live is Christ. Like Christ is life. And to die is gain, but that's because it just puts us more immediately in the presence of Christ. Your purpose for being here is to glorify, have fellowship with God, but all of us have this sin problem that creates an obstacle that we cannot deal with ourselves. We can't overcome this obstacle. No amount of effort, no amount of work on our part will ever get us reconciled with God. It'll never restore that fellowship. But God loves us so much. His grace is so magnificent. You see the compassion of Christ here? That compassion flows throughout the Trinity, throughout the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that same compassion is what led the Father to send Jesus Christ to do two things. To live the perfect life that you couldn't live, that you were supposed to live, but you couldn't live, and to die to pay the penalty for our sins. Because the Bible tells us when we have faith in Christ, Christ calls us to repentance and faith in him, to follow him. When we have faith in him, there's a transaction that happens. This perfect, righteous life that Jesus Christ lived, God credits that to your account. And the sin that you lived out, Christ, that gets credited to the account of Christ. And he paid that penalty for us on the cross. That's the message that when you see miracles in the Bible, ultimately, all of them, that's the message that they're all pointing to. That's the message that they're all pointing to. That God is redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ. The question for us is simply, are we going to believe it? Are we going to give our lives to Christ? Are we going to accept that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be? The Son of God and rightful Lord of our lives. And that changes you. That changes everything. That's why your life becomes to live as Christ. Because it's a total rearranging of your priorities and, and, uh, and uh, a total rearranging of what you live for and what you want to do. You want to live for Christ. As we look at the Gospels, never lose sight of that. We're going to continue in chapter 14 next week, looking at Jesus walking on the water. We'll get into chapter 15 again, uh, more miracles of Jesus healing, Jesus feeding the 4,000, but again, these are all about verifying for us who Jesus Christ is. And the question is, do you accept it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for just making it clear to us who you are, that really you, the miracles and 
the reality that you are the Son of God. It can't be denied. Nobody even in the time of your earthly ministry tried to deny it. It was simply, do we accept submitting to you as Lord of our lives? And I pray that you would give us the faith and the repentance to do that. I pray that um, for those who don't know you, you would bring that fresh breath of spiritual life into their hearts that they would um, come to trust you as their Savior and their Lord for the first time. And even for us who have known you for some time, I just pray that every day there would be a renewed focus and a renewed understanding of what you have done for us, who you are, and um, how our lives should look in response to that. Pray that you bless this time in small groups. Help us to love and encourage one another. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right.